Welcome back. Today's topic is all about the pharmacist role in the cannabis industry with special guest Dr. Cody Peterson. We're going to talk about cannabis as medicine, how it works in the body, specifically how edibles work in the body, what types of drugs cannabis is replacing, the pharmacist role in this ever-changing industry, and of course, the many faces of LinkedIn. If you want to ask guests like Cody questions ahead of time, send me personal messages, request guests in the future, or get some exclusive content, you can join Patreon for as little as $1 a month. I just got back from Nashville last night, so I'm inspired for my next Patreon post, which will be all about traveling with cannabis. If you want an absolutely free way to support this podcast, take literally 10 seconds and give this podcast a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. And thank you so much to anyone who's already done that. Before we get started, I want to read a really nice message I received, and I want to keep the name anonymous, but I thought this was just a really kind message about the importance of education on topics like cannabis. Hi, my name is Blank, and I'm writing to you just to say thanks and share my story. About three years ago, I got really sick. I couldn't eat at all. I had no appetite, was very nauseous all the time, and was full within a few bites of food. Because of this, I went from healthy and happy, working outside, and living a life full of climbing, skiing, and hiking, to losing 40 pounds. I had such little energy that my friends had to go to the pharmacy for me because I didn't have the energy to get in my car and drive there. I had an endless amount of medical tests done and rolled myself in an intensive outpatient program for anxiety in case it was mental health related and was trying everything I could. I knew cannabis could possibly help, but in freshman year of college, I stopped consuming because it gave me too much anxiety. But being all out of options, I decided to give it a try. It took a while to find the right kind of product and cannabis to help, but it changed my life in a way that I never thought it could. Once I figured out what worked for me, which somewhat felt like the process of finding an SSRI that worked for anxiety, my life was turned around. I was hungry, I was eating food, and after a little bit of consistency, I was finally getting an amount of calories that was normal. My fiancé and I were able to travel, I was able to work again, and a myriad of other things about my life got healthier, because I was eating like a healthy person again. Recently, I stumbled upon your content. I feel like for so long, I was lamenting the fact that I wasn't seeing anyone talk about medical cannabis like they used to. It was all about recreation, which is great because normalization is fantastic. But I feel like it wasn't able to get info or tips or feel validated about finally finding the thing that in all honesty saved my life. You being a PhD, advocating for the healing aspects of cannabis and educating really gave me a good feeling about the future of this plant in our society. I don't know if I'll always use cannabis. Maybe one day my body won't need it to feel healthy anymore. But me, my fiancé, and the rest of my family are really thankful for it and thankful for people like you in our community. Anyways, I'm sorry for the long email and what's likely a rambling wall of text, but I felt drawn to say thank you and share my story. Have a great and healthy day. How is jury duty, by the way? I've never had to do that yet. Did you get a good case? <sighs> so, so I, uh, I I ended up getting dismissed. My wife is pregnant, oh. and so uh, she had an ultrasound. She saved me on this one. Uh, but yeah, it it was honestly, it felt like the most bureaucratic, like kind of 
disorganized mess that I've I've had the the pleasure of engaging civilly in. It just like I got roll called a lot. My name got called. I sit down and wait, and then you get called again. And you sit down and wait. Um, wait, what do you mean? But I, can I see- like. I literally don't know. So they're like they're discussing something, and then they're like, um, "Cody Peterson, what's your opinion on this?" Is that what well, well? So that's funny. Is like you don't realize it, but like a jury of your peers is selected and agreed upon by the lawyers. So like as they go through, of like they bring eighty people into a room and ask them, "Can you be here from these days to these days?" And this is generally what they're thinking. Have you ever? Do you know these people? And as long mm-hmm. as you are, uh, you know, an unbiased peer. Right, then you can get into like the nitty gritty and then they do some interviews. You know, what is your experience? Do you have any bias towards X, Y, or Z? And they like whittle it down to those thir- 12 plus three backups over the oh, course so of Oh, so that like, whole thing days. is like, it's, it's like a process in itself before you even get to like, this is actually the case. Like, this is the good stuff. Jury selection versus jury duty. I didn't make it through the, the selection process this time. Oh, and it is my enough. understanding it goes this way every state. Uh, but I would not be surprised if California has extra, extra this process into right. a, an extra bureaucratic and sort of cumbersome thing. But yeah, the whole day, I mean, I could not believe how many people were sitting in this jury duty room. Hundreds the whole day spent just getting selected or not selected. Can you like bring a book? In hindsight, yes. <laughs> yes, you need a book. <laughs> It didn't, they didn't tell you that, but yes, I desperate, my phone died because I was on oh, it for the entirety no. of the day. They should definitely like, have that on the flyer. Bring a book. Like you're going to be Bring bored. a charger, bring a flyer. <laughs> yeah. Like you may be here all day long doing nothing. Uh, uh. But yeah, it, it, I guess the positive is, is I've done my civil duty. I sat there all day long and yes. uh, they won't call me again for a year. Your civil duty of wasting your it, yeah, time. Yeah, so for the I wasn't government. actually juried. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> and like uh, some people are keen to do it. Um, you know, if you your job pays you full salary, for example, and you're going to do jury duty. I mean, people are like, "Well, this is a good trade-off." This was my day off yesterday. Like I worked irregular hours overnights in the hospital, so this was supposed to be my day off, and I ended up, yeah, giving it my time to the government. And again was woefully unprepared for the reality of the day uh, and did not come fully equipped. Oh, man. Well, thanks for for contributing your time to society. We appreciate you. And I appreciate the the fact that we have this right to be tried by a juror of your peers. Um, And and for that reason, I, I swallowed it and shut up. But could it be more efficient? Oh, yeah. And if you ever go, I would highly recommend a book bag, maybe a snack. I'll bring snacks for sure, and and maybe a Scooby book. snacks. And yeah, yeah. Hopefully, it's a while before I get called. But now that I say this, it's gonna be like next week. But oh, it's coming your way now. I know. I just have I have a feeling. But anyway, um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. So um, I guess we can just start if you're if you're good to go. I'm good to go. I talk about bioactive substances all the time, so this is uh, this felt like a natural fit. It does find its way into a lot of episodes, which makes me kind of happy because that's kind of like what the goal was. But a lot of guests will just talk about bioactive substances. And I'm like, yay, that's the name of the show. So that's cool. (laughs) All right. So we'll just get ripping. So welcome back to Bioactive. Today we have Dr. Cody Peterson, who is a PharmD, MS, researcher, clinical scientist, 
all the fun stuff. We're going to learn about what the role of a pharmacist is in the cannabis industry and just in general and some things that I think Cody can help us all learn about what's happening with cannabis in the body and maybe some other drugs. So welcome to the show, Cody. And if you can give a little bit more background about what you do, both in the cannabis industry and in the hospital settings, uh, that would be awesome. And then we'll get into the convo. Hey, everybody. Thanks, Riley. I, I really enjoy the work you're doing. Your guests so far have been stellar. Some of them I'm, I've acquainted with. Others uh, I had never heard of, but definitely I'm following them now. So, you know, big fan, big fan. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm a pediatric pharmacist by trade and training. I still spend most of my time in an emergency department taking care of kids um, who are having seizures or have a fever, whatever virus, um, and I help manage their medicine. So we work very closely with physicians who are experts at diagnosing disease, and then I help them select the best medicine, make sure that we prepare it at the right dose, the right frequency, um, you know, prepare for the appropriate side effects, so on and so forth. So I perform the role of a pharmacist, but I, I don't work in a retail pharmacy. I work in a, in a hospital, a healthcare institution. Uh, mixing intravenous medicines and things of that nature. So that's what I've done uh, for the last decade, and, and it's what I'm passionate about. And interestingly enough, another one of my passions that I discovered in college, which was cannabis, sort of collided with that passion for for uh, pediatric health as well as education. So uh, I went and got my master's degree at U Maryland. They had just opened up a new program to get an MS in cannabis science and therapeutics. And from there, I've sort of just been uh, figuring out where it is I can help as a pharmacist in the cannabis space, applying what I've learned in pediatrics and other experiences. Uh, and yeah, I found that to be basically as an educator. Um, so I spent a lot of my time doing education online, whether that's through socials, um, which I have a few of them, uh, or through my work with the Kenigma, uh, which is a, a science forward cannabis media company who's really trying to answer people's questions about cannabis. Um, and we do uh, basically a, a WebMD for weed. So we've got an expert, a pharmacist, a geneticist, um, you know, a biochemist on the back end reviewing these articles and making sure we're putting out high quality, um, you know, reliable content, which has been a problem historically in the cannabis space, who's really focused on search engine optimization, but maybe not factual truth. Um, and so much more. You know, I'm an educator as well. So I teach pharmacists about uh, cannabis pharmacology at UCI, uh, California, Irvine. Amazing. You do so much in the industry and beyond. And, you know, thank you for everything you do. And any any of the listeners, you might have visited the Kenigma before because I've like accidentally visited quite a few times when I'm Googling a very specific question that I like don't think the answer is <laughs> even on the Internet. And the Kenigma comes up often as like the only place that has an article written about whatever that specific thing is. I remember a while ago I was looking at making uh, cannabis infused cheese and just infusing milk in general. And a Kenigma article came up and like essentially walks you through exactly how to do it. So a uh, great resource uh, for anybody who wants to learn more. They are just you guys put out some awesome content. Yeah, we're trying to cut through the smoke. You know, I think that it's challenging to find reliable information. And by having that expert level review, um, at least for the majority of articles, we're able to to craft something that is, is of a higher quality and that higher reliability. We've even got chefs on our on our advisory team that help kind of drive that that side of content. Yeah, it's it is awesome. And kind of just back what you were you were just talking about your your passion for cannabis, for education. And I'm sure you kind of saw this 
massive gap that we didn't have this high level education on how cannabis works in the body and drug drug interactions. And as we started really respecting and treating cannabis as a medicine, as people started to get off their pharmaceutical medicines, like we needed answers to these questions. And a lot of people just didn't have those answers for a long time. And I think that's like, I think that's a huge role of pharmacists in this industry. Well, it's whether it's working at dispensaries, whether it's working at a hospital, whether it's helping co-author these types of um, articles. Like we need this high-level information that talks specifically about, in the same language how we talk about other drugs, but talking about cannabis, so we can kind of put that in in perspective in relation to other drugs too. That's at least like where I find like the pharmacist perspective to be so so valuable. I think that if you uh, back away from cannabis and look at it as a bigger picture, whether you're talking about herbals or supplements or whatnot, you find the pharmacist is playing this role um, just sort of intuitively and innately in the space, which is helping people understand how medicines work, helping them understand how specifically in their situation on these other medicines or these other disease conditions, how that we might be able to predict that medicine works. It just so happens that cannabis medicine isn't that different than other types of medicine, but you're absolutely right. There's a huge gap here. I have many colleagues who don't know about the topic, don't want to know about the topic, have avoided the topic, are vehemently against cannabis uh and and that gap is, is indeed the one that i'm trying to fill and the pharmacist has played this intermediary role for a long time pharmacologists like yourself um and, and others they go out and they get this high level high detail information that, that's in a study but then that needs to be translated to you know the the consumer and the pharmacist has historically played that role um and you know to kind of piggyback off of that, you know, what you're doing suggests to me that you would have been an excellent pharmacist as well, because uh, your ability to convey this information is, um, uh, let's say, competes with the best of them. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I never actually like thought of that as a career path for me myself. But being in pharmaceutical sciences, I got to interact with a lot of PharmDs. And I always just highly respected what they were doing and how much information they had to learn about so many different drugs. Um, but you know, we, we need all of us here, all the different sides of pharmaceutical sciences, and especially mm -hmm. science communicators to make sure we're getting that out to the general public. So in the clinical setting that you work in, in the hospital, is cannabis integrated at all into what you're doing there with like helping children? Are you ever using CBD or other substances when you're talking about helping children? Or is that kind of like two separate things? Like you're doing the cannabis work and then line, and then you're doing the clinical work and not really touching cannabis as much. As if life was ever that cut and dry. <laughs> it all sort of blurs. Uh, but, yeah. but most importantly, at the hospital, I'm not the practitioner. I don't make the decisions around what medicine gets administered to, to which patients. Um, the physicians do. That's just the inherent nature sort of, of the hierarchy in hospitals. But to that point, since 1984, uh, THC, dronabinol, synthetically derived THC, is, has been a prescription medicine, um, and we carry that on formulary at my hospital. Since 20, 2018, we have Epidiolex, which is a CBD distillate uh, that is on formulary at the hospital uh, that we give to children with multiple conditions, mostly seizure disorders. But there's an increasing hope for using this this cannabis-derived medicine for many other conditions as well. So I definitely apply some of what I've learned there, uh, but I also work with, with patients directly 
and do sort of a more of a consulting role on, on my personal aside. As we kind of said, I, I wear many hats, not just this one. And, uh, you know, there's there's a bunch of different ways I'm touching cannabinoids. Um, and again, what I've learned in cannabis and what I've learned to become a science communicator plays out for all drugs. So I've worked with my hospital, my institution in Southern California to do blogs around vaping cool. and how to talk to your kids about it. Cannabis, fentanyl, all of that sort of stuff. Oh, very, very cool. And you mentioned some of your coworkers aren't like really understanding or maybe they don't really get the, the medical aspects of cannabis and how it can be used and the extent of its pharmacology. Are you having just kind of casual conversations with coworkers, other pharmacists, MDs, and kind of helping to destigmatize de in that way and just being like, oh, like, by the way, we have a ton of research behind this and like multiple drugs and like a lot of conditions are related to the ECS. Is, is that kind of part of what you're doing? Just kind of on the side during conversations? Are you are you like known as the guy Absolutely. who knows a lot about weed? Oh, oh definitely. If you okay. want to talk about weed or psychedelics, like, you know, I'm on the short list of, of known individuals. Everybody wants to like I'm out of the green closet and I'm, I'm proud to be there. Um, you know, I, I have a very professional job, um, but it, I also live in a legal state. You know, I live in a place mm -hmm. where, where adults are now trying this substance and recognizing that it's not so dangerous. Um, it's really when you go back east in particular that you start to hit a lot more of these stereos and, or stereotypes and stigmas um, associated with it. But, you know, uh, there are individuals who are very against it. Maybe they had a bad experience. Maybe they saw a loved one of them, you know, fall victim to, to drug abuse. And in their mind, that started with cannabis. And, yeah. and so there's, there's all sorts of scenarios that can come up. But, yeah, I'm definitely, you know, Dr. <laughs> Wiederson at work. That is so funny. <laughs> I love that, Dr. Wiederson. I might name this episode that because that's just awesome. <laughs> Do it. Um, Make it popular. And I think that's actually really cool that you can re like represent that in such a positive way and as being like a hard worker and a really smart pharmacist, but also like representing the culture and the people and, you know, people who like to use cannabis as well. I think the more people that are out of the green closet professionally, um, the better and as many different careers as possible. So shout out to you for that. Thank you. I, we have to have these conversations. These are the most commonly used substances. Sure, we can all be experts on lidocaine or we can all like pharmacists can become experts on antibiotics, which are all very important. But if you want to talk to the average person, the substances that they're encountering every day are alcohol, tobacco and cannabis. And, and if you cover those three, you cover 70 to 80 percent of the world's population every single day. And that creates an opportunity to relate on drugs, to relate and teach a teaching opportunity that we can educate people about the substances they consume and the risks and benefits that might come with them. So uh, don't shy away, pharmacists. Lean in and, and oh, get love your that. hands dirty. And I'm sure you also get more honest answers from your patients as well if you're like, you know, clearly educated and more open-minded versus a physician or a PharmD who is very closed-minded. Like, I think so many listeners, including myself, have lied to medical professionals before because you didn't feel comfortable enough to tell the truth in that situation. So I'm sure just your general education and attitude helps people feel more comfortable and be honest with you when you're talking about them, which is a harm reduction tool in itself. Right, absolutely. And, th and this comes up most frequently when it comes to cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So this is a, a syndrome that we're seeing increasingly common in, in 
in my case, kids, but patients in general, in legalized markets where chronically consuming uh, THC-rich products appears to lead to um, an, an inappropriate syndrome of, of nausea and vomiting that occurs in a, in a pretty cyclical fashion. And uh, as, as rare as we once thought it was, it is definitely increasing in, in prevalence. Um, I'm seeing patients with this with some regularity. But to, the, to your point and where I was going is physicians are not prepared to talk to patients about their cannabis use. They're not even equipped to talk about what type of concentrate they might be using. They barely understand the difference between dapping or dabbing and uh, vaping. And, and so going in there and being like, hey, you know, you know I'm, I'm kind of the weed guy around here. And, uh, you know, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about cannabis. And I think I think we might know what's going on with your you know, your your symptoms. And people have become very honest as soon as they're like, oh, OK, this guy kind of understands. He probably smokes, too. OK, he, he, he's cool. And it, they just open up. And, and oftentimes yeah. we do find that it's likely cannabis causing their their issues. Yeah. And, you know, thanks for bringing up CHS. This is something that we're also collaborating on to put together a study to learn more about CHS. And we will definitely do a, a future episode just diving into everything that we find there with that group of researchers, hopefully, if you're open to that. Um, but CHS is real. And, you know, I sometimes we talk about it online in these comments and I'm a little discouraged by our community because I see comments like, real stoners don't develop CHS or like these kind of <laughs> offhand comments. And I don't think that's a good way to um, support our own community. I mean, these people are cannabis lovers. They don't know what's happening in their mm -hmm. body. And as you suggested, like the evidence we have indicates that there's likely a genetic component to this. Like some people are yep. more susceptible to getting CHS than other people, but it likely is from the use of these super high potent um, concentrates or distillates or isolates even that people are using and it's causing some sort of dysregulation in the body. So, you know, as a community um, and as whether you're using any bioactive substance, including THC, including any other drugs, there are adverse effects that we should be aware of and acutely aware of as users in this community. So um, we have to take that education seriously, even though it's something that, you know, nobody wants to get CHS. We don't a lot of people don't even want to talk about it, but it's very real and people are experiencing it. And the more educated our community is, the sooner we can identify the signs and symptoms of CHS and we can make sure those people aren't getting harmed more than they have to be and that they can stop using cannabis and figure it out and you know go from there. There's so much that we can do just by having real conversations. Part of the problem is, is the pendulum of prohibition has led to the community being very resistant to talking about the negatives of cannabis or cannabis overuse or cannabis addiction, um, which all sort of combines and conglomerates around this genetic predisposition for this hyperemesis syndrome. So this is mm -hmm. excessive vomiting. It's a dysregulation of your master regulatory system. The, the industry is happy to tout the fact that we have cannabinoid receptors all over our body. They play an important role in homeostasis, in, in food ingestion, right? The munchies. We know it's all there. But when it comes to overconsumption and then a negative effect, the community is very quick to point fingers to something that isn't cannabis. Even though cannabis, like any other plant or any other medicine, it, it's not just good. It can have negative outcomes. Now, 
the cool thing about THC, and, and I'm sure you're going to talk about this with other guests uh, as you go on, is the toxic dose, the, the, the dose associated with death, is basically unachievable. You can't yeah. smoke enough cannabis to get to that lethal, that lethal dose. LD50 is what it's called when they're researching it in rodents. So 50% of the rodents die when you give them this much medicine. Now, you can definitely hit an LD50 in rodents, but with, with uh, primates and humans, we haven't really established what that dose would be. And if it was given, it would have to be given intravenously. And, and fortunately, we haven't gotten to a place where people are injecting their THC. Now, yeah. that said, the toxic dose or, or the, and then the therapeutic dose of THC is way, 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 way lower and is a moving target based on our tolerance because this master system is also very dynamic and can turn itself up and turn itself down. And so the, tox or the uh, toxic dose, which again is, is a science-y word for like, you know, when do you start to see negatives and mostly just bad experiences instead of good? And the answer is quite low with people. You know, we just saw this crazy, you, you, I'm sure you saw this on the news, is this woman had this THC-induced psychosis. The judge basically got stabbed. her off with probation for murder. Yeah, stabbed her. Yeah, 110. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> a very violent crime. And... You know, the, the perception of THC and how powerful it can be is, and, and even stigma is, has gotten us there. But the truth is somewhere in the middle where we know that there can be side effects. People with large doses of edibles can have a, a break in their perception of what is real and what isn't real. There was this really popular I've had friends that's literally happened to. Yeah, like I know mm -hmm. people I have a friend who thought he grew horns. He thought yeah. he grew horns. Okay, the guy is very sane. He, he was a big cannabis smoker, but when he took too many edibles... All of a sudden, he had this very negative experience. Now, fortunately, he didn't do something insane. And, and he had people that understand and are around. And we know that generally, we can just sort of wait this side effect out. But there are a lot of instances where people take too much and they find themselves coming to the hospital. We see this with children at the hospital with some regularity. Oop, they got into a 600 milligram bag of mango oh, peach rings, right? Yeah. And these peach rings that look just like regular candy... And now they come in and they're having low respirations. They're not breathing very well. Their oxygenation is getting a little lower than we would normally like. They may be at risk of vomiting and then aspirating on that, which means you know, uh, getting it in their airway. So in very rare cases, patients have to be intubated after taking very large doses of THC edibles. Side effects are real, and the, the refusal to acknowledge them is not helping the cause, in my opinion. Oh, I, I mean, I agree. We, we often talk about all these different compounds in cannabis, whether it's THC, CBD, the terpenes, the flavonoids, the flavorants, whatever it is. And we're always talking about how bioactive they are and how good they can be for so many different conditions. And it's like, yes, but bioactive means that it's doing something in your body. And that means that like there is a therapeutic window that we should be shooting for. And yes, cannabis is so safe. It's one of the safest substances out there, especially for how often it's used in so many different populations. But we also can't expect it to be like safer than water, safer than air. Like the limit does exist, you know? And mm -hmm. I think the second that we start not really respecting the medicine and just saying like, oh, it's just weed, you know, it's just we can smoke it all day long and 
not even think about what we're doing ever. Um, I think that's kind of, it's the same thing with mushrooms. It's the same thing with so many things. Like you have to respect that medicine. And oftentimes it works better when you have a reason, a purpose to using that. Even if it's like to enjoy your day, to have a better attitude. But, you know, a lot of people kind of do fall into that escapism. And and sometimes that leads to higher doses. And sometimes that can lead to a dose that can cause adverse effects, which does happen with every single bioactive substance to ever exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a bit of a commoditization, right? Where we have this sacred medicine that has been sacred for thousands of years, be it mushrooms or be it cannabis or many other psychoactive substances. And we introduce them into a modern society. And when we lose that reverence for them, we lose the ritual. Then we have a tendency to get more into the negative relationships. And, and this, is, this isn't a criticism. This isn't human nature. We just need to acknowledge that that exists. And then we, we need to be accepting of those who fall into it. And we need to develop tools and resources for individuals who find themselves there, including cannabis and cannabis hyperemesis uh, syndrome, which are both real. Cannabis use disorders, individuals who sort of get lost in, in cannabis use and can't seem to um, prioritize the other aspects of their life. It's not terribly common. It's certainly not nearly as dangerous as alcoholism or prescription drug abuse or so many other things. But we definitely have individuals, particularly those who grew up in a tough situation or had a lot of adverse childhood events that can find them, themselves uh, overly reliant on, on this medicine. And that comes in a whole spectrum to, to just sort of not, not achieving the, all the greatness that they could, all the way down to eventually finding themselves in a bad situation, making a bad decision that, that has impacts on their lives um, for the rest of it. This is not common. Most individuals will have a, a easy time managing their, their cannabis use, but we're all different, and, and we're all sort of wired differently. We're all more susceptible, have different life experiences and different circumstances, and side effects can happen. Let's acknowledge it, and let's w- move forward together with a scientific perspective. I, I love that. Um, and I, one last thing is I think the issue with cannabis use disorder is how it's described because it's essentially describing like a daily cannabis user, which in my opinion is not cannabis use disorder. I think you described it really well of like you're using cannabis to an extent where you can't do anything else in your life and it's severely impacting like your life in, in those ways. But the way it's often described in like literature is more of just describing a daily cannabis user and not necessarily like those super negative impacts to your life. So I would completely agree it exists, but I would also agree like we need to redefine and delineate exactly like what constitutes that and, um, you know, maybe a little more nuance incorporated there. Destigmatize that regular use. Any medicine that doesn't last as long as a day is frequently administered more than once a day, period. Mm-hmm. And and so it would be asinine to think that the cannabis user who derives benefit from it is, is limiting their use to once a week because the benefit that they derive from it doesn't extend into that period. And, and it's no surprise that we see regular users. I was super impressed uh, when you guys got your, your large um, NAP survey data together and you saw that 90% of cannabis users are indeed multi-day multi-times-a-day users um because that's a compelling number and and i love what you said it's like so many people think like oh i just 
I wish I could moderate my use more, but recognizing that a lot of people are doing this multiple times a day. And really, it's just about getting that control back. Individuals can feel okay about doing that as long as they're still being productive, they're still being emotionally you know, stable and healthy, and they're still caring for their relationships and their body. As long as we can do all of those things, then is, is regular use negative? I haven't seen that data yet. But uh, I'm willing right. to bet that it's going to be a lot less negative than the way it's been framed over the last 60 years. Yeah, and frankly, we should be asking ourselves these same questions no matter what drugs we're on. Like, yeah, cannabis is a great example, but like, why aren't we that intuitive with every substance that we're putting in our body every single day? I think cannabis users are just expected to be uh, much more in tune with that balance and making sure that they're within that balance because there's nobody prescribing them a specific number of things to take a number of times a day. Like we're in control of this medicine and this dosing. So we're often acting as our own pharmacist and we're supposed to be able to listen to our body and figure out when we need to dose and what products work best for us. And of course, like not everyone is that in tune with their body or has any sort of like background knowledge on how this works and how Mm -hmm. we should start moderating. So as you're saying, like the more community tools and conversations we can have about like, how do you moderate your use? How many times do you use cannabis a day? How can we share data to bring validity to people's personal experience that they might be very good at listening to their body and say, my body needs cannabis five times a day at a low dose. But then you feel guilty because of the stigma of the population, you know, from our community. But uh, you don't need to feel guilty if, if that really is what's providing you with the best medicine and you're still able to function and do everything you need to do, then that's amazing. And we should be really uplifting those conversations in the community. And we see a lot of people thriving on cannabis, mm-hmm. even large doses of THC products. They, they thrive and they are successful and they're happy and they're healthy. So it, just trying to, to decrypt or destigmatize and de-stereotype the, the cannabis plant and its regular use and then empower cannabis users and, and patients and um, everyone about what other types of cannabinoids can I be using? Can I be using something other than THC because that's all that's generally available, especially in, in emerging markets. Is there another yeah. cannabinoid, be it CBG, CBD, THCV, CBGV, so many more mm. potential use cases that people could then taper down the one cannabinoid that we know when used chronically may have some significant negative effects then maybe we can just find a way to use that sparingly and support our bodies with other minor cannabinoids or just to to tailor our use to what we're looking to gain from that substance. And that goes back to being mindful and to being thoughtful around what we're doing instead of using THC, which is a bit of a blunt tool, right? It's uh, you know kind of on or off. And I think there's a lot more to cannabis that the more people we educate, the more likely we are to to discover benefits. Love that. And earlier in this conversation, you mentioned, um, you know, talking to your other pharmacist people at the hospital and you were kind of known as, you know, the weed guy. Um, Did you learn about cannabis, THC, CBD and pharmacy school? Does anybody learn about it? Or like, how do people go about learning more like a professional in the medical field? Like what's been your experience about what what resources are available for people to learn about how cannabis is working in the body? Yeah, not enough is the the short answer. So interestingly, I was in pharmacy school. My, I did not learn anything 
about cannabis. It didn't mm-hmm. even come up. The endocannabinoid system wasn't mentioned, despite being discovered in 1992 or 1988, depending on who you're talking to or which science you're considering. Uh, you know, we didn't learn about THC in my class. The only class that I know my classmates got introduced to THC Wait, was toxicology. drugs of abuse and toxicology. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, it was uh, a combo. Yep. Yeah, man. I, I knew it. it. It's... It was a great, a great class. Everyone loved it, uh, but I didn't take it because it was an elective, and uh, it was really sad. But I want to then point something out. This is different now. So that was in Pennsylvania, where I was educated at, at Duquesne in Pittsburgh. Today, they are getting a lecture on the topic. In the future, cool. they'll likely get a class on the topic, like we're doing here in California. We've now got classes at UCSD, UCI, USC. We're hoping to get UCSF. All pharmacy school, two or three credit elective classes talking about cannabis, cannabis medicine, the endocannabinoid system, cannabis addiction, all of these topics that this this substance, which is the third most commonly used uh, you know substance on earth, uh, alcohol, caffeine, tobacco, cannabis, right in there. Yeah. Uh, we know that we need to educate pharmacists and that we need to be getting this new generation geared up on these conversations now because they're only going to happen more in the future. So mm-hmm. we're working on that, but no, it's unfortunate. I wanted to step back to Pennsylvania, though. In Pennsylvania today, you have to get your cannabis from a pharmacist. It is mandated that every dispensary have a pharmacist with a license in the, uh, staffing that store. So... It is asinine to think that these schools are not dedicating time to an entire subsection of the industry. And there are a lot of schools turning online, similar to my master's program, similar to to other schools of pharmacy around the country. We're getting there. But no, in 2010, nope, nobody. Wow, so you're, you you kind of like self taught yourself just based on like you were able to understand science, so and you loved weed, so you were able to yeah kind of bring THC those two together. A, it's a drug, right? I mean, if you yeah. get to the THC isolate, right? Take cannabis out of it. The isolate THC is already a drug. We we have it. it Marinol has been approved since 1984. It's a substance that's been in the pharmacy that whole time. So I'm already equipped with all the skills. It just so happens that I'm a pharmacology nerd and Mm. cannabis is my favorite substance. And yeah, so I was able to self-teach mostly through listening to podcasts, just like the one you're listening to right now. That's you. I just broke the third wall, y'all. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) You know, this is how I learned is going to podcasts and, and listening to Jason Wilson and Jason Wilson's guests and listening to Ugh. Nick Jacomes and Nick, Jac- Nick Jacomes guests and, you know, really diving in. And obviously I had this underlying pharmacy information, but so many smart people out there sharing free information. You, you can become an expert too, if you, if you get the right foundation. Oh, I love that. That's them again. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I just, I love the podcast too. I've always been a huge fan of Jason's podcast, Curious About Cannabis. If you have not listened to it, you need to. Um, I think we've both been guests on that podcast too, which is so cool. Um, And he's actually going to be a guest on this podcast coming up soon too. So that'll be cool. I want to hear about his uh, near death experience and just like, I want to hear from him. He's always interviewing everyone else. And I'm like, man, let me hear about your story. Tell me everything. So hella interesting. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And, and if, if we're going to, you know, keep touting, tooting Jason's horn, if you're going to listen to his episodes, his, his season one, and then the beginning of season two, they're, they're 
conglomerations of all his interviews and he does like true episodes so to speak like that he narrates so good these are these are gems uh so definitely check check out those episodes not just the behind the scenes so i will link those i think i can in the show notes um because i don't think i've listened to all of those either and now i need to go back and listen to all those oh these are these are exceptional yeah so many good people in this space but jason's definitely one of my favorites i agree with that i think he's so cool um Continuing on, just um, with your clinical experience, I guess, you know, you've obviously read about drug-drug interactions with CBD and other pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. drugs, or maybe it's THC and other pharmaceutical drugs. How common is this in clinical practice? What drugs do you see that are like the most most common for drug-drug interactions? And do you have any resources for people if they needed to like check what drugs they're on and if it's safe to use cannabis like how do people Mm -hmm. go about making sure that they're using cannabis in a safe way if they're on other pharmaceuticals it's a great question to ask a pharmacist this is sort of one of the the areas that that we're probably most valuable in understanding so before we kind of get into which substances and which drugs we need to worry about you kind of have to understand what it is that that makes drug metabolism and and so you know a a lot of the listeners already are aware of drug metabolism they might not know it as that um in this pharmacokinetics and metabolism subsection but they know because they know about edibles and they know when they take edibles they consume them and they get that 11 hydroxy that makes them even higher it gets them even more um what's the word psychotropic effects uh, and, I was going to say blazed, so, but yeah, <laughs> stony, <laughs> whatever word you want to use, uh, Eddie, Eddie locked, whatever people want to say. So when we consume THC enterally by mouth, it has to go through a specific set of places through the body. And in, in that process of traveling throughout the body, it gets broken down by enzymes or, or proteins in the body specifically meant to churn out things that aren't meant to be there. So the the body sees THC and it says, ah, we have to get rid of this. How shall we do it? And in the process, one of the things it can do is it can turn it into 11-hydroxy, which is this edible, uh, potent THC, what's called an active metabolite. And and, uh, that's sort of a basic thing that happens with all substances, particularly that we take by mouth. Now, if we inhale THC, it takes a different path through the body. It exposes itself to different enzymes uh, that are in different abundances, depending on what tissues of the body we're in. And we tend to make a lot less of this this 11-hydroxy, the, the edible cannabinoid that is so stony. So that's just a brief snapshot into THC. But back up a little bit, what other plants might we be consuming, right? What other herbs might we be consuming? And there are a lot of things, but one example would be the coffee bean. We take Mm. the coffee bean and we put hot water through it and we extract all sorts of stuff that is water soluble. One of those being an alkaloid known as caffeine. We ingest that caffeine and it goes through a very similar process. It takes about 30 or 40 minutes. It starts to be absorbed. It has its bioactive effects. And then caffeine is also metabolized and broken down by very similar enzymes known as CYPs, cytochrome P450 enzymes that are in all sorts of our tissues. Now, we often think of these CYPs, these enzymes, as being there um, you know, to break toxins down, but they're there to break everything down. The, um, another example I like to use is, is grapefruit. 
grapefruit is is delicious. It's a little, you know, it, it's a little too tart for me. I think it's like to sprinkle a little sugar on it. I like, I but like the, the sugar the, on the grapefruit. <laughs> but the point is, is it's delicious. And you would think it's just fruit. The body just uses it for energy. But just mm-hmm. like can- cannabis and just like the coffee bean, there's stuff in that grapefruit. Um, and, and some of those uh, stuff is also involved in, in uh you know, its color or in its flavor or in its antioxidant profile, it has to be broken down when you ingest it too. And so even though it's not a drug, these coumarins and these things that are inside of the, uh, the grapefruit have to be broken down by enzymes in our body as well. That's why when you look at some prescription medicines, you'll see a little label on there that says, don't take this medicine with grapefruit or grapefruit juice mm-hmm. because a lot of grapefruit can inhibit some of these enzymes that were that are involved in THC metabolism even. And so these enzymes that are in our body, whether they're CYPs or UGPs, UGTs, excuse me, uh, these and many more, they're there for a reason and, and they have different functions, but often it's just to clear things that aren't natural to the body, something known as a xenobiotic. And, and so these enzymes that are involved in breaking things down are also involved in cannabinoids, and that dictates what these cannabinoids can do in our body. Now, when we take a lot of cannabinoids, <laughs> just like when we take a lot of grapefruit juice, we can get and occupy a lot or all of these enzymes that are normally meant to break down other substances. So when we keep them busy, with a ton of THC or more, more than more so CBD, when we occupy all these enzymes, we can alter the way other medicines are behaving in the body. And that alteration, while um, sometimes, well, sorry, how do I want to say this? It's dose dependent, but sometimes when you take a lot of cannabinoids or you take a medicine that's very narrow in its therapeutic window, that can be very dangerous if we get too much of it. Now we open ourselves up to serious drug interactions because we've occupied all of those enzymes with the cannabinoids and therefore there's more drug freely floating throughout the body to cause its negative uh, outcomes. So I just wanted that to kind of great, set that up. That was a great, great description of metabolism, of drugs and other things. I think grapefruit's such a good example. Um, but yeah, I mean, before we just dive deeper into this. So like the the enzymes are essentially like you need them to process a lot of things in your body. And if you are providing too much of too many things, these enzymes can't process it anymore. And that's just Mm -hmm. building up in your body, which is like for most things it can be safe. But for some things like some drugs, if you have too much of that buildup in your body, it can get toxic at some point and we want to avoid that. So this is really Mm -hmm. where like these drug drug interactions happen when too many things need to be processed by the same enzyme and that we just don't have the availability of the enzyme because the drug concentrations are too high. Exactly. So we we preoccupy these enzymes, which results in more of that drug. And as you know, THC, very unlikely to cause serious side effects. That's not the case for all medicines. Some medicines, you get a little bit too much and you can actually perish. You can die. So I'll give you one example of, of these drugs. You asked for some examples. The most concerning medicine, which is fortunately becoming less common today, is a drug called warfarin or coumadin. And this is a blood thinner, as it's typically called. And, and warfarin is one of the uh, narrowest therapeutic window drugs. In fact, 
it's so challenging to get warfarin to the right dose that while you're starting new warfarin, every few days you need to go into the hospital or into a pharmacy, get your blood taken, and then we have to change the dose. And we, we kind of slowly tinker with the dose trying to get you to a, a relative balance. But it's so sensitive that even what you eat, if you eat a salad with dark leafy greens that wasn't you didn't have yesterday, that'll totally throw off your drug levels. That, so this, that this is how is, my grandfather <laughs> Father died is he was oh, on warfarin sounds- and he was eating spinach salads every day to try to be healthy and it ended up killing him right and so what that'll do is that'll make warfarin ineffective so then your blood will not thin enough exposing you to clotting which usually results in either a stroke um, or a heart attack and and so if you take too much warfarin let's say um, you don't take any green leafies let's say you were eating a big salad of spinach for a month and while you took your warfarin, we got you all balanced. Then you don't eat for five days and you get no, then that can skyrocket your levels up. And now you're bleeding and you can have a brain bleed or a bleed internally. And that can take your life as well. So this is a very narrow window drug. And when we uh, take CBD, it interacts with the same enzymes that are involved in breaking down warfarin. So we can actually take CBD and increase the levels of warfarin, increasing our risk of bleeding. And this is an established sort of... Um, risk so to speak and so cbd does interact with certain medicines another medicine that's considered narrow in its therapeutic window is tacrolimus it's a medicine used when we uh, when we give patients transplants or when we're trying to combat the immune system and tacrolimus is very sensitive to the effects from cbd as well however most drugs are not in this really dangerous monitored super closely and so most of the time, the negative outcome is not uh, death or, or something yeah. of, of that nature. Most of the time, it's just going to alter the levels of your other medicine. So let me give you an example of, of um, maybe an SSRI, uh, sertraline, Zoloft. Now, if you take CBD while taking this substance, it's probably true that some of the drug metabolism is going to be inhibited. However, we know that Zoloft has a very wide therapeutic window and increases in drug levels um, while could be negative, depending on what the circumstance is. It could also be positive. Perhaps you're not getting all the benefit you need from that sertraline. And so that, that marginal amount of interference with a drug that has a larger window, this risk is greatly reduced and, and it's no longer sort of a red flag. So we're particularly concerned with drugs known as narrow therapeutic index drugs. And there are a handful of them, but usually you would know if you were on them. Um, and the vast majority of the time we don't have issues. The vast majority of the time. There is a case report uh, that, that is a little concerning and, and I'll just briefly review what happened. But this is a patient who's dealing with arthritis, and for their arthritis, for many years, they were taking a drug known as meloxicam. Uh, it's, a, it's a medicine just like ibuprofen, or very similar to ibuprofen, works a little bit differently, it lasts quite a bit longer. So mm-hmm. meloxicam is a standard care, or standard therapy in arthritis, in a, in a few different forms. People take it for a long time. This patient had been on it for a long time, they didn't change their dose, and they didn't have any negative side effects. Then the patient begins taking CBD, titrates up their CBD dose relatively quickly, and we get inhibition of the same enzymes that are involved in metabolizing meloxicam, which means meloxicam drug levels shoot up, 
And then we saw a serious negative uh, adverse outcome, which is known as Stevens-Johnson syndrome, a very nasty drug reaction that causes mm. the, the slothing, the, the, all the skin layers in the mouth and, and on the eyes, they all start to become very red and swollen and have serious, Ooh, it's nasty. Oh my gosh, that it, sounds it can be horrible. Very, <laughs> yeah, Stevens-Johnson syndrome. It's rare, but it happens with a handful of prescription medicines. Naloxicam has been associated with this syndrome. The patient had never experienced this, but after initiating CBD, especially a larger dose, that we saw the drug levels of naloxicam go up and they did see this negative side effect. Mm. So it, there's this whole range of drug interactions that can occur. And that's why it's important to be thoughtful around what medicines we're currently taking and the dose of cannabinoids that we're taking as well. Yeah. Th thank you for those examples too. And you know, something I always wonder with CBD dosing is a lot of times you'll read like the therapeutic um, dose for something like anxiety is 200 to 600 milligrams, which is mm -hmm. a lot of a pure it's compound, a right? Of any and we compound. Don't... Well, right. Yeah. And we don't really know how that translates from like a pure CBD product to more of like a I'm going to say full spectrum type product that has CBD, maybe a little bit of THC and these other cannabinoids and terpenes and all this other stuff. Like, can we just use those products at a lower dose and we have that synergy and that entourage effect that would allow people to take less of a single pure substance and maybe reduce the amount of these potential drug drug interactions? Um, I don't know. I don't know if we have like this exact data yet, but my theory is that that would make a lot more sense. And that's kind of the whole theory behind natural products in general mm -hmm. and this polypharmacology and the synergies working together to reduce the amount of a single compound needed. Whereas like the super high dose of pure CBD is very pharmaceutical and thought, um, you know, kind of that more Western paradigm of thinking about um, medicine and drugs. So, you know, we don't have the data to support it yet, but I'm still a proponent of full spectrum products and having that minimum therapeutic dose for what, whatever you're looking for. Um, but unfortunately, the research hasn't really caught up yet, and we're still in that hundreds of milligrams boat for what we can back up with research. Yeah, it's and it's challenging because you want to be able to support what you're saying with, with science and studies, but the yeah. science and studies don't really occur with full-spectrum products. Like, no one's doing that research because it's not going to be patentable, or even if you find that it to be true, you're not going to be able to commercialize that idea, and so therefore it's not a highly desirable research subject. Look, I'm of the same mindset that you are, Riley, that that this cacophony, the symphony of molecules in the in the cannabis product is what makes it this, this something that we can leverage. It's true that the doses of CBD isolate do need to be pushed quite high. In those patients that take CBD isolate for their seizure disorders, you know, Ethan mm -hmm. Russo put out a, a, a nice paper, although it's, again, sort of weakly supported because there's not a lot of data, that suggested patients who are taking full-spectrum products can take significantly less than the Epidiolex dose, than the prescription medicine, which is made from essentially CBD distillate. Um, and so there is some thought to that, but there isn't a lot of science to support it. Um, I look forward to hearing that science, but but we share that, that opinion, um, and I look forward to finding out more about whether that's true or not. Um, it's going to be a really challenging sort of thing to, to unfold and unpack because when you start talking about multiple bioactives in the same product, 
you're talking about a bit of a network, you know, what connects to what in the body and brain. And that's a really challenging thing to elucidate as well. But yeah, when you're talking like that, network pharmacology is what rings a bell. If CBD acts on multiple receptors, including serotonin, including the opioid receptors, and then THC stimulates the serotonin system and the opioid system, what is the net outcome in that, that two drug combo? And I only did two drugs. We didn't talk about terpenes. We didn't talk about other minors. And so, yeah, I, I'm all for it. But unfortunately, there will be individuals, particularly who, who focus heavily on, well, what has been published and uh, rather than sort of lived experience, then you'll have individuals push back very strongly against the idea that low doses of CBD can do anything. Oh, yeah. There's there's a lot of people passionate about a lot of things. And I think <laughs> what we're what we're starting to see, which is very promising to me, is Research is starting, at least in natural products, to really lean into the synergy and networking and figuring out, like, what are these omics platforms that we can use to look at things at a more global perspective? Because for so long, we've been just, like, really diving into, like, specific mechanism to specific molecule. And we should not be expecting to figure that out with cannabis right now because the story is so complicated, not just Mm -hmm. because the ECS is involved in literally everything that happens in our body but also yeah (laughs) cannabis has like hundreds of bioactive compounds in it so um you know just changing our approach to research and really what we're looking for with the answers to our research i think can kind of help us restructure a bit to get what we need out of cannabis research to use this data and science for advocacy and to find the right products for people and maybe we're not going to find a specific mechanism for every single molecule right now but you know even just figuring out like the healing potential from a global scale i think is you know super important and that seems to be where it's going which is awesome I think that's where we have to go. This hyper focus on what is happening with one individual protein inside of a cell, it's it's too reductionist to be real. What did the patient report? How did they feel? What was their response biochemically using biomarkers and continuous monitoring and all sorts of advanced monitoring techniques, I think is the future, not what happens in a test tube or in a cell culture or in one singular cell when you introduce this substance? It's like, what is the bigger picture? What is the actual outcome? It has to be the future of pharmacology research. This, this small molecule, old sort of reductionist approach to one drug, one receptor, which turns out is a total lie anyway. I teach my, my paramedics this. You know, we, we give albuterol in the hospital all the time. And, and if you read the textbook, it very clearly says it is a beta-2 agonist. It, it selectively activates the beta-2 receptor, which is the receptors in your lungs that control bronchodilation. Oh, that's a weird thing to- <laughs> It, it, the, the tightness of your lungs is dictated by this receptor. But here's the thing. They say there's no beta-2 receptors in the heart, but yet we still see the effects of a beta-1 activator in the heart, even though I'm giving a selective beta-2 agonist. And when you get down to the details, there is a preference of this drug for the beta-2 receptor, but it, it does activate the beta-1 receptor, and it does interact with numerous other receptors in the body. And what the effects of those are are basically ignored because we've, we say that we've established its primary effect. But the truth is, is it, it, 
pharmacology is reductionist and the more we learn about the body and its complexity the the, the endocannabinoid system it's in its role in basically every physiologic process in the body the more we recognize or at least i can speak for myself it, you know that whoa we're gonna need to take a different approach and we can't pretend that it's this this thing and this thing and they interact we're talking about a network and without acknowledging that we actually won't we won't break through uh and get to where we need to be no and then there's this whole other level like half of those papers being published are like they're only testing those things because those are the enzymes the lab already has or those are the substrates the lab already has and it's like you're Mm -hmm. just doing you're just publishing stuff because it's easy to get that data not that it's the most applicable always it's just often you know you have the resources to publish that data so that's the data you're going to publish but Anyway, we could we could talk about that subject for literally forever because that's kind of what we're missing for for data here. But um, when you are in hospital settings or even just from a pharmacist point of view, what drugs do you think are being kind of replaced or substituted in some way for cannabis? Um, is it like opioids that you see are often substituted for cannabis, anti-anxiety medicines, something else? Or have you noticed a trend yet? Yeah, I think we're going to, again, get to a point where we are looking better at the minors and offering people more viable solutions because right now most people are supplementing THC, which is a hell of a medicine, but it really doesn't treat everything and it's not always the most optimal for long-term management of of symptoms. But it's certainly useful and people find a way to titrate to the effect that they're looking for to, to get the most out of it. Um, but I, I'm hopeful that when we get more information on minor cannabinoids, we'll really be able to leverage this. Uh, but you've already kind of hit the major ones. So it's pain medicines. So whether that pain medicine mm-hmm. is an NSAID, right, like meloxicam or yeah. ibuprofen, or whether it's opioids, those are really common uses. Um, some individuals are helping to manage their irritable bowel syndrome or their other GI symptoms, which there's a litany of medicines that might be used in that regard. Um, and then I think the last one is probably like, uh, like nausea medicines, helping symptoms of cancer and fighting cancer. Like we see a lot of use in the oncology population, even if we don't, I don't know, acknowledge or support or what it might be. There's a lot of individuals reaching for cannabis to help combat the symptoms of cancer and, and the treatments of cancer and their, their awful side effects. So I think those are probably the, the one, two, three, Uh, But as you know, you know, there's a real desire to get better mental health outcomes. And I think individuals are using cannabis to get there. I just don't think it's, you know, THC alone will be able to pull us out of this hole. I think we need a bigger toolbox and cannabis offers that toolbox. But the, the mechanics, so to speak, are not abundant enough to help people manage, uh, you know, use those tools to really optimize their mental health. I think the more therapists we can get involved, the more psychiatrists that we can get involved that are open-minded to using cannabis, the better we'll be. And I do think we'll be able to replace anxiety and depression meds with some sort of botanical options. And it probably won't be cannabis alone. It'll probably be finding a way to support the endocannabinoid system uh, through activities, through food, through other herbs community yeah yeah absolutely there's so much that we can do that isn't a pill or even a plant um to help our to help our bodies and i do think part of that will be feeding the body 
a better balance of omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids, which actually are the underlying source of all of our endocannabinoids. Well, not all of them. Fats in general are the source of all of our endocannabinoids. Yeah, definitely. And and having a, a good amount of healthy fats in your diet definitely helps your body produce those molecules. And that absolutely has implications on how well your ECS functions. Um, and I think cannabis can really help kind of act as this hopefully paradigm shift in healthcare, kind of showing that, yes, botanicals, complex medicines, there is a lot of science and literature and lived experience that can validate these medicines for so many different things. But we just need to, one, respect what people have already been doing and listen to what people have been doing, but also, Mm -hmm. you know, get that science and also communicate that back. Because if we have no way of linking the community with this research, then all of it doesn't really mean anything. We need to be able to educate and communicate with everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, in my opinion, starts with educating healthcare professionals because this is who people want to ask. They want, they need to feel comfortable, and healthcare professionals have to be equipped for these conversations because stigma and ridiculing and judgment is getting nowhere, and we need patients yeah. to feel feel like they can trust. I could not agree more. I think the top-down approach is what we have to do, like starting with medical professionals, making sure they have the knowledge, the, the knowledge on the ECS, the knowledge on different compounds in cannabis, different formulations, different ways of ingesting, different alternative medicines. Like if they are educated and people can trust them as a source for this knowledge, we would be able to make so much change in our healthcare system. But obviously that starts with like integrating this into the knowledge that we give healthcare professionals in medical school and pharmacist school. And it sounds like pharmacists are doing an amazing job, you know, educating your community and getting that out there and starting to make change. Now we need to see that on the MD side too. And maybe mm-hmm. it's already happening. I hope it's already happening. Um, but Slow. it's going to be, yeah, but eventually it will be awesome. Um, where do you see like the future role of pharmacists in the cannabis industry in like this legal infrastructure? Is it working at dispensaries? Is it formulating? Oh, like- that's a really big question and it's challenging. So, so it's true that multiple states have mandated a pharmacist in their involvement in medical cannabis programs. But it's also true that these these some of these programs have been very limited, either by corporations who are who are sort of taking over the that dispensary model in those closed markets, um, and and in general, when recreational cannabis comes along, there are fewer people seeking the services of a pharmacist, which then makes margins tighter, which makes affording a pharmacist yeah. more challenging. And so, I don't really see the future in dispensaries. Um, at least not with the, the current layout. There might be a few states that are that are holdouts. Minnesota has a really exceptionally uh, well done pharmacist led program where they've got a strict you know criteria list for who can who can consume or who can get a license. Uh, excuse me, a medical marijuana card. But mm. it it's also been really cool to watch because they're gathering data and they they have data that shows what we're talking about that patients are reporting increased quality of life that they're reducing their opioid use so there's lots of really cool data that's coming out of that pharmacist led program in minnesota cool. they're sort of i would say the the shining star uh in the country but most states are struggling to keep that model open we have two things on the horizon one schedule three if the government, the federal government decides to make cannabis and cannabis products Schedule 3, in order to dispense a Schedule 3 substance outside of a state cannabis program, 
you're going to need a pharmacist license. You're, this is the way that it's always worked. And unless the DEA starts licensing dispensaries, which is highly unlikely, then you're going yeah. to see this medical model. So now pharmacists have to get involved. Now pharmacists need to know how to talk to patients about the, the benefits and the risks of these, this medicine and how it interacts with their other medicines. And it's going to kick people into high gear, I believe, if Schedule 3 goes online. Now, that's mm -hmm. not necessarily what I want. I, I'm actually more team deschedule than reschedule. Yeah. Uh, but that is one potential reality in the, in the future, depending on how the administration decides to push that forward. Um, the other thing I, I think pharmacists are going to continue to be involved in is, is educating and helping patients understand. If cannabis does get descheduled all the way, patients are still going to be taking prescription medicines. Patients are still going to be using um, you, you know, other substances. And having the pharmacist being one of the most accessible healthcare professionals sort of available at a store as opposed to you need to set up an appointment will inherently be a place where people are asking for advice. The same way they ask about their ginkgo balboa or their dandelion root, at where they purchase these herbs, um, you know, the pharmacist is available. And I think that we need to continue to be available to people because more and more questions and more and more people are interested in trying to find our roots, which was med medicinal plants. That's where the vast majority of the medicine we use came from. And um, I think that people are desperate to get back to that. And they feel detached from that now that they take this this pill that is of marginal benefit. Yeah, and like oftentimes people do know that cannabis is medicine, that or other herbal extracts are medicine, but they want that validity from a medical professional like a PharmD or an MD just to be like, yeah, like that could that could definitely help your inflammation, that could definitely help your gut issues, or even just talking about dose or time of day or to take something with food or without food like people still want guidance on their medicine other than just googling something because you know <laughs> you can't really just trust the internet and I mean bud tenders are doing an amazing job and I I support bud tenders till the end of this earth but like they don't have the training on the processes happening in the body and these drug drug interactions and and some people have a lot more complexity mm -hmm. happening in their bodies yes. than other people do and they want to have somebody to talk to about that and we just need to make a pharmacist available i'm of the mindset that mandating pharmacist is silly but a yeah. make someone available if your dispensary has let's say let's say we keep a medical model and you want the medical dispensary license then just make it make it so that the, that you have an access to a cannabis nurse and to a cannabis pharmacist and to a cannabis doctor built into your hierarchy let's create some infrastructure for the patients who want help who want medical advice not everyone needs that you know a, a young individual who's taking few or no prescription medicines has a healthy liver has a healthy kidney has healthy lungs this patient doesn't need a pharmacist. They're going yeah. to be fine. They'll figure it out. They might get a little too high one time. But generally speaking, they're going to be okay. The patient who's on warfarin, who is on blood pressure medicine that we know THC can cause changes in blood pressure, might fall over. Now they're bleeding at risk of bleeding, and you've given them a CBD product, which has increased the warfarin level, and you've introduced a substance that can help make them fall over. You don't think that person should have at least had a conversation with an expert about these potential side effects? Of course they should. And if that was your loved one, if that was your child, you would want access to a healthcare, healthcare professional as well. And we need to do a better job of supporting those patients while not 
road blocking or, or gatekeeping those individuals who just want access to this herbal medicine, which, which should be allowed as well. Oh, God, I love that. Yeah, and, and shout out to Jessie Lynn Dolan in Vermont because she has a free cannabis nurse hotline that she advertises at these different dispensaries in Vermont. So if you have questions or you just want to have somebody to talk a to, um, she's, a, she's a free resource, and she's actually going to be a guest on this podcast soon and talk about some of the research she's done. But I think she's really helping close that gap and provide that you know sense of security and validity for, for a lot of medical patients. So shout out to her and anyone like her who's doing that kind of work because it's definitely not easy. Um, we're going to get into kind of a couple final questions, but I have one for from one of uh, the patrons of this podcast named Morgan. And Morgan asks, okay. what have you found to be the most challenging aspect of a clinical career focusing on cannabis? And have you experienced any difficulties from colleagues not understanding the usefulness of medical cannabis? And we kind of touched on this, but... I don't know if you want to answer that as well. Yeah, I've, I've bumped into a few people who don't really appreciate the usefulness of cannabis. The good news is, is the data speaks for itself. The evidence kind of yeah. fights that battle for you. So just if you get equipped with the potential reasons cannabis may be beneficial, the overall sentiment among patients, it's pretty easy to make a good case. And you can't change everybody's mind, so I don't lose it. I think the biggest challenge of making a career in, in cannabis as a healthcare professional is what am I going to do? How am I going to make money? How how do I do follow my passion in this space and take on a role? Traditionally, a pharmacist, a nurse, a doctor, you know, independent business is a challenge. And so then people find themselves in a predicament where it's do they create a product or a product line? Are they, you know, how are they monetizing their experience? And I'm not going to pretend to have all of the answers. Um, but I know that when I transition to sort of traditional pharmacist to this cannabis pharmacist role, I felt much more fulfilled. And it's going to take that that can fuel you to do all sorts of stuff that that'll lead you down your passion. So it's it's easy to do because you're passionate, but it's challenging to monetize. So I, you know, don't leave your day job until you can figure out how to do that. Um, and, you know, find it what it is that you're good at and apply it in cannabis. So I tell people this all the time. It's like people are like, how do I start a career in cannabis? It's like, okay, what do you already do? What are you already good at? Cannabis needs everything. We need all of yeah, the people for, with all of the skills. So use what you know and help support the growth of the industry. It's still a new industry. It's not established. There isn't just a nine to five that you can come pick up as a cannabis nurse or as a, as a cannabis pharmacist. There are a few, I guess, in those dispensaries, but it's going to take innovation. It's going to take passion. It's going to take hard work. Um, and the challenge is, yeah, how do I do this full time? Because I love it, but you know, you, you still gotta, you gotta pay the bills. And that's a reality for many individuals, um, who are trying to make this transition. Just the cannabis industry in general. I think the advice you hear from everyone is don't do it for the money because, um, <laughs> it can be pretty difficult to, uh, make a, a decent amount of money in this industry. But I think the people doing the best 
exactly what you're saying, Cody, are the people who are so passionate about it, genuinely believe in this medicine, want to help people, work very hard, and then, you know, the industry sees you and wants to lift those people up. So, um, you know, just being a genuine person and being a cannabis consumer obviously helps too, uh, being in this industry. So thank you for answering that question. I'm sure they will appreciate that. And then um, where can people find the content you put out, learn more about what you do, contact you, any of that kind of fun stuff? Totally. So the, the way I sort of got my start in the place I still lean into most for my, my career, my professional content is LinkedIn. I'm very active on the platform. I engage with lots in lots of conversation around the nuance and the complexity of what we're talking about, the politics, all of that. So LinkedIn is where if you're really trying to engage with me is probably where I spend my time. But you know, I got the normal ones. You can I post most of what I put on LinkedIn, also on Instagram. Uh, I also have a Twitter uh, and and technically a Facebook as well. So I'll give Riley all those links. You can you can get me there. But if you're really into interested in cannabis, you're interested in a career, meeting the people who are connected and working in the space, I could not recommend more going to LinkedIn. There is a lot of cannabis business happening on LinkedIn. It's one of the few uncensored platforms, or mostly uncensored. I certainly don't want to say yeah. totally uncensored. Uh, and I think that honestly, I have done. No thing that has impacted my career development as a pharmacist, as a cannabis pharmacist, more than joining LinkedIn and engaging in the community there. Uh, it's just a little more put together than the community on, let's say, Facebook or Instagram, which has been very hacked up and sort of subgrouped into into groups or into shadow banning and all of that sort of thing so well also why are we supporting to... instagram like i don't understand that as a community why we support instagram if they're constantly just deleting all of our stuff and like just shadow banning us like they treat us like absolute trash but we're always mm -hmm. like hey follow follow my ig you follow know, it's, me it's, oh, it's just a little <laughs> uh, it's a little silly to me <laughs> yeah you know it's where the people are and people haven't yet transitioned but the same problem exists on tiktok and this is where I know oh, that yeah. you've gained, gained the most traction is like it's one of the reasons I stopped posting on TikTok is I found it sort of frustrating to them to keep threatening to take me down. It seems like they mostly threaten. Uh, but, you well, know, I think. Yeah, I think Instagram like was just like I've been deleted off Instagram over 10 times. But TikTok, they just kind of keep threatening you. I know they they do delete <laughs> some people, but at least for me, I get mostly just like threats and shadow bans and less of the actual like delete button but they yeah, all the are terrible is, as far as censorship it's just it's been a real impediment to established cannabis content creators cannabis businesses because you put all this time energy money and effort into curating an audience into curating in this page only to have it torn down right and it's in a situation where margins are already thin as thin as can be it's been really debilitating, and I agree. For education, um, for harm reduction, for teaching people these things. Like, mm -hmm. most people are on social media. That's how you get people, is you put things on social media and they find you because the algorithm helps them find you because you care about similar things. With cannabis, I mean, if, you, if you're known for posting about cannabis, your account probably gets very few, you know, viewership. And we self-censor all the time. You'll see people bleeping out the word cannabis or, yep. you know, I've said the word gardening a few times because another TikTok creator calls it gardening. And it's like, 
I hate doing that. It's such a disservice to our industry to self-censor because I do not believe this word is bad at all. I do not want to censor what I'm saying. I uh-huh. think it impedes the quality of the education. But if we don't do it, the video gets taken down. So it's kind of like you either appease or you stop posting or you get deleted. But yeah, you know, there's no one, doubt these companies, these companies have us by, you know, Oh. by where it counts and it's it's really unfortunate yeah. but they do have the power and sometimes it you know you have to play by the rules but you know i'm of the mindset that yeah i, I don't want to be censored this is why i spend most of my time on linkedin uh because yeah. i've never had any post re- redacted refused whatever and i've posted just about everything you could talk about um you know i think that as long as you're being civil you should be able to talk about whatever you want. That's that's sort of the inherent right that we we've been afforded as Americans. That's why we serve jury duty, uh, so that we can <laughs> be afforded jury these. Duty. <laughs> Just teasing that uh, if you don't hear the beginning of the podcast, that's where I was yesterday. Um, I think I'm but, gonna include it. I love it. I love hearing about jury duty. <laughs> okay, jury jury uh, selection duty. Uh, okay, well, that's so, great. I mean, yeah, definitely get on LinkedIn. Anyone who is aspiring to be in the cannabis industry, there's so many cannabis companies on LinkedIn. There's a lot of cool research that's talked about on LinkedIn, like all the time. Um, it's definitely a, a safe place to be for a cannabis creator. It's where I've gotten all my opportunities to do educational videos, to work at the Kenigma. I was headhunted on LinkedIn from the Kenigma because I was making wow. cannabis content. And, you know, everything that I've done in the cannabis space has come from LinkedIn. And I will tell you, zero good opportunities have come from Instagram. Uh, now I wouldn't fully say that, you know, for example, I met Riley from TikTok. So, you know, I met Miyabi on TikTok. Uh, and so there are some positives that come from that social network, but from a business perspective, everything I've grown, everything I've done professionally has, has stemmed from either in-person or LinkedIn communications. And so I, I do recommend it. I think, um, it, it was great advice given to me and I'm, I'm passing it along. If you want to be in weed, join LinkedIn and start posting. Don't be afraid. I think it's um it is kind of funny that it's so weed friendly because it kind of seems like it would be the least weed friendly because it's kind of the most like you know big quotes here stuffy compared to the other like social media platforms but yeah. also LinkedIn can be hilarious there's some really funny people on LinkedIn and I like following them very professional very experienced and like lots of different diverse stuff but like more drug business gets done on LinkedIn than any other platform. And that says a lot because I'm always getting DMs on Instagram from the people who are selling all the mushrooms and drugs or whatever, right? Like half of my follows on on Instagram just end up being these fake drug accounts, which is absurd to think that content creators like yourself or myself are being shadow banned and blocked while half of the people who follow me are these strictly drug selling accounts. (laughs) Just drug bots. Yeah, it is kind Mm -hmm. of crazy. Drug bots. It's wild. Uh, So yeah, you, you heard it here first. Join LinkedIn if you want to be in the cannabis industry. Yeah, the real drugs get sold on, on LinkedIn. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Is there anything else you want to say or put out there before we end this episode? But if not, I just want to say thank you so much for being on. I think these were some super important conversations to have, and I really enjoyed hearing your perspective. 
Thanks, Riley. Yeah, I would just say that if you're interested in what I talked about and you're a cannabis consumer, check out the Kenigma. If you're a pharmacist or a healthcare professional who wants to get involved, you can check out my nonprofit, which is pccrx.org. I'll share that in the in the show notes as well. And um, if you just want to connect with me, LinkedIn is the way. You're doing amazing stuff. Keep going. Your guests, I, I'm I'm honored to be on, on the early list, but I can only imagine who's going to end up on your podcast in the future, Riley. Um, your questions are great, and uh, I look forward to the next one. We'll talk about CHS. Yeah, I'm excited too. So, um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Mad love. <laughs>